It's Wednesday, March the 1st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio at the Hoover Institution's Washington, D.C. office, in a very cozy studio that reminds you that office space in Washington is at a premium, I'm joined today by Dr. Timothy Kane, the Hoover Institution's J.P. Conti Fellow in Immigration Studies. And that's our topic today, immigration reform. Tim, good to see you. Great to see you, Bill. Thanks. So I imagine you watched the president's speech last night, and in that classic sort of Washington tradition, you listened for your piece of the action. Lobbyists do do tax reform, listen to tax. People involved in health care listen for Obamacare. But here at Hoover, you are our man on immigration. So you listen to the president talk about immigration. Tell me what you heard. Well, so the thing that impressed me was uh, that I think there was a bit of a head fake. It's a head fake I liked saying that he wants to engage with Congress again. And he talked in in some detail about um, legal immigration reform and changing the way it's been done in the United States for a long time. So, you know, since the 1960s, U.S. policy has favored uh, family reunification to the extent that of the one million legal immigrants that come to the United States every year that become U.S. citizens. That's a number that, that is far bigger, I think, than most people realize. And I think that's healthy for the economy. One, one million immigrants make our economy stronger. But 80 to 90 percent of those are family reunification. Mm-hmm. And guess, guess which other country does that? Zero, right? So right. it's a very unique policy. The president said, let's, let's get in line with Canada and, and other countries that have a merit-based immigration reform. Mm-hmm. So that's something that appeals to a lot of policy wonks. I think it can be perverted by the political process right. as a you know uh, betrayal of our core values. And, and of course, the, the identity politics will get thrown in there. But most policy wonks think this would probably be a turn for the better. You could still have family reunification. It could cover 250,000 mm-hmm. uh, immigrants instead of 800,000. And it would be incredibly generous. So I think there's a lot of hope for for um, reform that might come out of this. He's looking at legal immigration through the lens of economics. He wants skilled workers in the country, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, how to boost the economy, how to get to a 4% annual growth rate mm-hmm. is something that's a, a big agenda that the president embraced, and that encompasses tax reform, uh, kind of t- trade policy too, although uh, they tend not to like to, to think that um, their trade – Issues are going to hurt, but immigration reform is key to growing our economy. Um, if you're if you have a shrinking population, you're going to have a shrinking economy too. Right. So the question is, which immigrants get prioritized? Right. Now, Trump has been playing sort of a cat and mouse game with the press on immigration for mm-hmm. a few weeks now. A couple of weeks ago, he told senators that he had to, would not have a problem if they revisited the immigration plan that they trotted out in 2013 when the Senate voted for immigration reform and it died a rather undignified death in the House of Representatives. So he cracked a window on that. Yesterday, he cracked an even larger window, as you alluded to, where he hinted that he's open again to bipartisanship. But as you listen to that speech, you did not hear the word dreamer. You didn't hear any talk about DACA. Actually, it might be worth explaining for a minute what exactly DACA and dreamers are all about. Oh, good point. Yeah. So there was some legislation a few years ago to allow uh, a class of uh, undocumented immigrants or illegal aliens, whatever word you wanted, people that are in the country that didn't have the right to be here, that had had either come in, uh, snuck into the country. Uh, but about 40% of these illegals um, came on a legal visa, and then they overstayed. Well, what about those uh, who brought in small children? So the small children were born in another country, not U.S. citizens, but when you came at two years old or five years old, they say, no, no fault of your own. The idea, uh, those are the dreamers, Bill. So 
how to treat them. Well, legislative efforts failed uh, along with comprehensive efforts. So President Obama took started to take executive actions. And I think it was, I could get the years wrong, 2011, maybe 2012, when he passed a, an executive action or took an executive action called DACA. And it applied to children, to these dreamers, and gave them a three-year renewable legal status. Right. Um, I sensed at the time that three-year renewable was making it a political hot potato. And then uh, a couple years later, they expanded that to apply to parents, so DAPA instead of DACA. That's the one that was challenged in court. Uh, The courts tended to agree with those states that said this was an overreach of federal authority and it was an executive action, so questionably legal, Um, not as sympathetic a case as the children. And there's been a stay put in place. So that whole program right now is in limbo. And the president has said, President Trump has said he is sympathetic to the dreamer issue, but didn't bring it up in his speech last night. Right. I thought one other uh, interesting aspect of Trump talking about immigration in his speech was, again, the lens through which he presented the American people. And he was not apologetic or defensive in this regard. If you looked up in the gallery of people sitting up with the, mm. with the First Lady, there were families um, who had lost loved ones. They were the victims of crimes committed by illegal immigrants here right. in the United States. So here's Donald Trump in some sense, Tim, still in primary mode, if you yeah. will, talking about immigration, not in terms of you know open embrace and the Statue of Liberty and so forth, but talking about it through the lens of crime, injustice, if you will. So any surprise there? No, uh, you know, he, you pointed out that without immigration, he might not be the Republican nominee. He right. might not be elected president. So I think this is the issue that in, in a lot of ways launched Donald Trump. But you remember he gave a, a speech that a lot of people objected to. And he complained uh, fundamentally about criminal illegal aliens. I've always thought that was very smart. And I've wanted right. to take the president at his word that he does favor immigration overall. He wants it to be legal. He wants to be people that add to our culture, our society, and economy. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's a racist, and I think the left uh, far overreaches by turning this into a racial issue. So he's focused on crime, and of course he's emphasized it again and again and again and put people up in the gallery. The thing I was going to remind our listeners of, Bill, is I don't think Trump would have been president, not if he hadn't given this speech, the famous rapist and murderer speech. If, I think it was two days later, uh, Katie Steinle hadn't been killed uh, walking in San Francisco on the boardwalk, a tourist area, by a gun discharged by an illegal immigrant who'd been deported multiple times. Correct. And uh, San Francisco's a sanctuary city. He, so that issue uh, and that incident validated his approach, and he's never let it go. And I think Americans, um, by and large, agree with him. Exactly. That's interesting. We at Hoover, we have what we call the Golden State Poll, which studies California issues. And we did a series of questions for the last poll in January on Trump in California. Mm -hmm. And we put in a question on sanctuary cities. And it's interesting, the state of California, which here on the East Coast is perceived as this big blue marble, actually the state (laughs) split just about even on sanctuary cities. And so that represents a progressive blue coast in California, which where the where the large cities are, which yeah. don't care the policy, but the rest of California not. So you see the split there. You know, and, and I'm going to throw some uh, not cold water. I'm just going to throw in something a sharp tangent here. Uh-huh. So you find in California with this poll, great poll by the way, and and and, and great issue. I was happy to uh, to write in that on the sanctuary city issue. Right. In California, people are split whether there should be or shouldn't be sanctuary cities. And nationwide, you know, the opinion is sanctuary cities are are improper. You know, 
subverting and stopping federal agents who are trying to get at criminal legal aliens and having a sanctuary city that you know, releases them on the street and won't cooperate with the feds. It's an incredibly unpopular position. People take from this, though, that Americans are cold-hearted. So if you compared, say, American attitudes uh, to Swedish or British or German attitudes toward immigration, um, that we would be much more cold-hearted. In fact, um, Pew did a study of attitudes on immigration, said, uh, I think the question was, do you think that an increasing number of people of different races and cultures and creeds uh, strengthen your society? Mm -hmm. The American response was 58% positive. The next closest country was half that, and that was Sweden. Right. And then it went down from there. So. America is an incredibly welcoming country to immigrants. We just want it to be legal, and we want to bring in people who aren't criminals. I think Trump has veered sometimes over that line, but he's a lot closer to it than most people realize, given the media hyperbole that covers him. Right. So I grew up in this town, actually. I grew up in Washington, and I'm quite familiar with Washington uh, weather patterns. Okay. And it is windy outside today, and it's overcast, and it's going to storm later on today, probably about the same time my plane leaves, actually. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, nothing worse than being in a Washington airport when a storm is coming. It's just an awful feeling. Uh, there's another storm that was supposed to hit Washington today, but it may not, and that is the new and improved executive order, executive action on that's right on um, on uh, refugee policy. Yeah, uh, which ties into immigration because obviously we're a nation of welcoming people. And yeah. the question is what Trump is doing. Uh, it appears that having indicated they were going to drop this today, Wednesday, a day after his yeah. speech, it yeah. appears two things are going on at the White House. Number one. They understand the politics of the moment, which is that he had a pretty good speech on Tuesday yeah. night. He's getting good reviews for it. And especially when you lay out a speech and talk a lot about, a lot about bipartisanship, why underdo all of that the next day yeah. with the controversial plan? But secondly, Tim, it sounds like they're actually taking a step back here and making sure that they know what they're doing this time. You've come uh, weaponized here today to this talk. You have some <laughs> stats on refugee policy. Well, walk us through that. Okay. Well, so, yeah, the president had issued uh, – not one executive order, multiple right. executive right. orders. Uh, I, I think of two primary, one dealt with internal enforcement, and that one um, is proceeding apace. Uh, things like tightening up the border and building the wall and mm -hmm. uh, empowering local agents to, make, to have discretion over who to deport and who not to deport. Um, that was all centralized under President Obama. The other executive order uh, dealt with what's called the travel ban, like let's, and, and it affected all refugees from all countries. There was a 90-day stay, and particularly though focused on uh, Iran, Syria, and nine. I'm sorry, seven Muslim majority countries. That was challenged in court. The court put a stay on it, and so what the White House said is, you know, we're, we'll fight this in court, but we're not going to wait for however many months that may be. We'll reissue a new order, right. at paying attention to what it seems like the court's um, sensitive to, because it was a multi-part order. Um, but the reality is they overreached by initially the White House itself saying that order applied to green card holders, applied to students on travel visas, instead of just limiting it to refugees who right. could potentially pose a threat. Uh, and so we've been waiting. And you, you're right. They promised it would come out today. But don't forget, they also had promised it would come out last week. So right. your, your background, I didn't know you were from D.C., Bill. I had a background in business. And one of the most dreaded things we heard in business was um, when somebody would say they would get something to you in a, in a week or two. Because a week or two is the ultimate ambiguous statement. It could easily mean a year or two, or it could mean three days from now. So 
what's happened is you've got a bigger team in place. You've got uh, Secretary of Defense now, um, who this is part of his purview as well, Secretary Mattis, our old colleague from, uh, from Hoover, um, Secretary of Homeland Security, and uh, new economic team that's not fleshed out at all. This is an economic issue. So I think they're just realizing they, they, they need to take this carefully. Right. I don't expect the order to come out today, but, you know, they've surprised us in the past, haven't they? They have indeed. So you look at the big items in his speech last night, taxes, tax reform. Yeah. Um, you can see a path for tax reform, which goes through uh, Kevin Brady, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, has been talking taxes, working with Hoover Fellows on taxes. Yeah. John, uh, John Taylor and others seemingly forever. Um, the White House and Secretary Mnuchin and so forth. In other words, there's a group of people working on this, and they're probably pretty close to something already, 80% there. You look at Obamacare, as complicated as that topic uh. is, there's still pretty clear ownership on the issue, and that would be, again, Speaker Ryan, uh, plus also the new uh, HHS Secretary, uh, former Congressman uh, Tom Price. But immigration, completely different creature in this regard. If Donald Trump wanted the Senate to pick up immigration and run with it again, there's a question, Tim, of what Republican in particular, who's going to step forward and volunteer for this assignment? It's the old joke of who steps forward to volunteer and everybody takes one right, step right, back. Right, right, right. Poor guy standing there is in charge. And, but, and but there's from, Eddie, Lazier, Eddie Lazier looking around going, what? what Am happened? I in charge? <laughs> but from a, from a practical standpoint, if you wanted to do this in Congress, how do you get it off the ground, Tim? How, yeah. what, what senator is going to step forward at this time? and try to be the originator of the gang and fill in the blank the number yep. and try to move this forward. And then what's the reception going to be on the House side if the Senate would actually come up with a plan where you have a bunch of very dug-in House members who at all times are concerned about conservative values and yeah. not giving in to, to the Democrats on certain topics. So you've studied this issue. How would you actually start this ball rolling on the Hill again? So to answer your question directly, I don't know. Yep. When I think of who was a member of the gangs in the past, uh, Marco Rubio was one, but he was he was brought into the process. John McCain has been affiliated with immigration reform for a long time. But I think what's different with this issue is it crosses, you know, is it a domestic issue or an international issue? Is it defense and security or is it economics or is it culture, right? Everybody has a bit of a, a finger in this. Uh, right. Certainly Homeland Security uh, is, is the lead on it, but... Um, I don't know if there's a if there's a clear path uh, or clear set of leaders, um, but I think one thing is clear, and that is the old process is not going to be brought up again. The the media is making a big mistake if they think, oh look, Trump's saying he wants a compromise, comprehensive right. immigration reform, CIR is back on the table. Well, no, this is, I call this the walking dead of policy, <laughs> right? It's, there've been so many efforts at comprehensive immigration reform. And Bill, when I, I started to specialize in this and dug a little deeper, in the past, I'd been on board. I had literally traveled the country. The Bush White House had asked me to help go give some speeches in right. favor of right. their version of comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, and I started to realize it was, it's like one of those blue ribbon commissions that their purpose is to get together, talk, look like they're doing something, and do nothing. Let me, let me ask you the question that every non-Washingtonian 
us at this point. Yeah. What on God's earth is comprehensive right. mean? Right. Comprehensive means, well, we, we, we sure as heck wouldn't want to do this one step at a time. Let's put all these 17 different issues together and pass one bill because some of them are, are my constituents won't like. Right. Some of them they'll be – so we'll have a wall in there. We'll have a guest worker program. We'll have a pathway to citizenship. We'll do something special for dreamers. Um, we'll, we'll change the composition away from family sponsorship to merit-based and have a point. And it's too big. They were close to reform. In, I believe it was 2007, 2008, there was a senator, though, that sabotaged it, that said he was in favor of reform, infuriated Ted Kennedy. And you know who that senator was? It was Barack Obama because labor got to him. <laughs> That's so right. Do not do this. They don't want it solved. Correct. There's a constituency on the left, just like a constituency on the right, that doesn't want this solved. What's exciting about President Trump is he's committed to action, mm -hmm. whether it's executive action or legislative action. But it's not going to be this comprehensive approach. It will right. be step by step. So let's work on the work visa program. Mm -hmm. Separately, let's work on how do we restructure legal migration and handing out green cards. Right. So um, I take him as word. I'm very excited about it. Uh, don't know exactly what they're going to propose, though. But I think it's going to be a, a, a sincere effort to try to build a coalition and do the easy things first. So you're telling me that comprehensive is code language for 218 votes in the House and a filibuster-proof bill in the Senate. Yeah, right. Okay, very good. This is the fun portion of the show. I now task you, give you the opportunity to move the ball on this topic. We're putting you in power here. I'm not putting you on the spot here to write down your plan and give me the 30 things that Congress needs to do. But you talked about doing this item by item, yep. bit by bit, step by step. Let's start at Tim with this. Let's give us just three or four general policy areas if you're going to do immigration reform. Let's say economy, let's say mm. refugees, workforce, let's say. So So let's, let's start with the top of this chart, this top of this economics chart you put together by just the big subject areas that immigration reform needs to cover. Okay, so economy, refugee, security. Okay, those are big um, three. I want to preface all this with saying that I've spent a fair amount of time surveying experts on my own. We've, we're putting together a, a survey of American attitudes, but studying other surveys of American attitudes. And that's why I come at this very optimistic that Americans are big-hearted people. The headlines will tell us that we're more and more split. This is super divisive. There's a study I, I wanted to bring with, with me here. Look at, the, look at the headline in this. Wide partisan gap in views of immigrants' impact on the U.S. And the, and the gap is widening and widening. But when you look at the numbers, the Democratic view in 1994 was that 32% said that immigrants strengthened the country. Now that number is 78. So right. Democrats have become much more warm to migration, Im to immigration. Republicans, meanwhile, were at 30% in agreement with that statement. Now it's 35. Right. So Democrat Republicans, too, have become more favorable to immigration, strengthening the country. Sure, there's been a gap in views, but both parties, and, and the, you can't blame it on independence, Bill. Right. Everyone recognizes that immigrants strengthen our economy. So I think the president will see numbers like this, and his agenda will hopefully go toward what I'm going to describe. Right. So on the economy, I think th the reason we need to celebrate that comprehensive's dead is it included language about a pathway to citizenship. 
Now, that's Washington code. Sounds very good. But what it means is you grant amnesty. Right. It means you say someone who's broken the law, come into the country illegally, jumped ahead of the line of millions of other people in the world that, that are waiting to do it the right way, to do it the legal way. They get some kind of amnesty. That's objectionable to too many Americans. Right. And so we need to set that aside. Mass deportations is, is the, sort of this uh, fantasy on the far right. Maybe 10% of Americans think that's the right answer. Um, need, need to set that aside. The compromise, and this is in poll after poll, is do you favor granting legal status but not citizenship? Allow people to work but not access welfare. Right. And then over time, maybe in 10 years, they would be in line with everyone else and they would be able to get a green card, but not jumping the line of people that are waiting, you know, refugees say that are waiting outside the country. So the number one thing I do for the economy is get a, a work program that makes sense, right. that creates portability. So if somebody's in a, a state or a country um, and, and right now being exploited, they could take that work visa and go to another company or to another state or to another city. Um, that would really give our companies and especially our agribusiness the flexibility it needs vital for california and um, not create this big haystack that the that the needles the criminals and the, right. the gangs can hide underneath so i think economy and security kind of go hand in hand but that's our compromise it's legal status work visa whatever you want to call it right although there will be push and pull uh, with regard to access to public benefits for somebody who is here but not a legal citizen in California for example we've been having this conversation yeah. going back to proposition 187 which originally was about what it was about legal immigrants having access to public education and public health yes and yeah this, this will be the debate in congress which when was 187 bill 1994 1994 so yes almost 25 years of having this so uh, excuse me 35 years of having yeah. this conversation now um, but that uh, 25 years uh, but that is going to be the push and pull of Congress. And, and so I think that, it, right. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the challenge will be then where do you draw the line? Right. For example, and, and, somebody, somebody who is in this country illegally, but you're going to say, okay, you're going to have, for lack of a better word, protected status. Yeah. Because that's I think that's what you're getting yeah. at here. You're going to be here. You're not going to be a citizen, but you're not going to get deported at the same time. So you can come out of the shadows. Does that person have access to state public health? Right. Does a child, if that child is not born here and that's not a citizen, does that child qualify to go to the University of California, the University of Maryland, the University of Virginia, and get in-state tuition and that sort of oh, thing? Oh, yeah, so there's this, a good one. This is the Briar's Patch. This, so, this is so why I call it the Gordian's not it's, it's it, There's Let's say there's this basket or right. bowl of, of uh, benefits right. and, and A to Z. Now, we can knock off the easy ones like um, – Unemployment insurance benefits for somebody here to work. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, but education for, for their children who aren't citizens, I and mean, this, this happens with ambassadors that come to the U.S. Of course, they can right. go to a, a local school, business people that come here. Um, emergency room access, say a tourist. It's, we have something like 180 million people that come here as visitors every year, just you know, mostly tourists, a lot of business visits. If they're in a car crash, are they allowed to go to a hospital? Of course they are. The, the, the question is maybe um, voting. Of course, we can set that out as we're not going to do that. But there's some middle ground of goods. I don't know what the right answer exactly. is. Um, yeah, food stamps, things like that, where I, I maybe would start by saying no to those programs. Um, but when we can rule out the things that, of course, are included and, of course, aren't included, it's pretty easy to get to a compromise right. where you, you – the real question is who gets those work visas? Uh, did the companies drive it? Uh, does the federal government decide, you know, we need more computer programmers or more farm workers? I'd like to see the market decide it and, and let um, 
some of the ideas that Eddie Lierziers talked about, where you would have a bidding process mm-hmm. and let the government actually make some money out of this by issuing the work visas. But um, I think there's an easy way to compromise. And once you start thinking about what we mean by welfare, right. of course, voting's not included. And of course, public education is included for children. Okay, so I pulled you away. So back to the pillars of immigration. That, that was good, back, though. That was important. Back to the Kane plan. What's so on refugees, uh, I think unless we're going to melt down the Statue of Liberty, we need to accept refugees. We've been a leader in the world uh, on welcoming refugees so that we are the refuge for wretched masses yearning to breathe free. I think it's incredibly humiliating to Cuba that so many refugees came to the United States. And uh, I, I was a big fan of the wet foot, dry foot policy. Um, the question is, how many? Right. Now, it's been about 80,000 a year. Uh, under the last year of President Obama, it, it rose. The number of refugees that he allowed in was set at about 100,000. Um, but the, the, the kerfuffle over who gets in as a refugee, I think, is, is, is a bit of a ruse. Uh, presidents have complete discretion over which countries are prioritized. I went back and looked at the numbers of refugees over the last uh, 10 years. Right. Cuba was about 43% of the refugees. The number two country for refugees in the United States I had, it's Burma. I had no idea. Burma. And the number four country, this is a, a little embarrassing. I'm a relatively well-educated man. I've done an index of economic freedom for the whole world in my background. So I've studied every country in the world. I didn't know where Bhutan was. Bhutan's the number four country for refugees over the last 10 years. 8% of our refugees. Now, Iran, 3.4%. Sudan, Syria's not even on here. Mm-hmm. So presidents have discretion and they should because where the refugees come from is a foreign policy decision. Um, I think closing off the refugees to Iran might have been a mistake, mm-hmm. but I would tend to agree with the policy. And I think if I were to go talk to my friends in Ohio, where I grew up, and said, you know what, we're going to have more refugees we welcome to the U.S., but we're going to focus on this hemisphere, Venezuela, for, for goodness sakes, right. um, Honduras, and, and places where we've got a cultural commitment and alignment with over the long term. Um, the Europeans right now have the issue with Syria, and the, the notion of Trump is mean and, and Barack Obama was not. You know how many refugees from Syria were brought in as a percentage of all Syrians displaced under Barack Obama? For, for his eight-year presidency, 0.15% of all the Syrian refugees that had been displaced were brought to the U.S. You could double that or you could cut it in half. Right. I'm sorry, that's still a token. You're not going to solve the problem by accepting Syrian refugees here. For the Europeans, it's a different problem because they're literally declaring asylum and, and just waving into the country. But we can deal with things in this hemisphere where we have more access. If we want to get engaged in Syria, then you're talking about regime change, boots on the ground, right. safe zones. Right. That's how you solve the problem. The, the moralism over these token uh, refugees that come here. And of course, every person that comes, you change their life. But the, the, the ocean of millions of people that are being hurt in Syria, we can't solve with our refugee policy. So you look at this chart, Tim, of refugees, and this is a humanitarian chart. Mm-hmm. This is Cuba, 42, almost 43%. That's communist oppression they're escaping from. These other various nations, civil wars, economic yep. hardship, people fleeing for better life. But if Trump in his speech is talking about revisiting legal immigration and putting it into economic terms, what happens to these people? Because I don't want to insult these various countries, no, but no, some of these countries no. are not exactly the Silicon Valley workforce that Donald Trump probably envisions. <laughs> Engineers coming here and inventing the next uh, great app. So uh, 
How do you balance the two, Tim? How do you keep bringing in refugees in humanitarian situations, plus also trying to bring in you know, individuals who have a more skilled working background? Refugees make up about 5% of the immigrants that are brought to the U.S., and so it's a relatively small population. What is that in, what is that in numbers? So 50,000 to 100,000 refugees brought in. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump initially said in his executive order they were going to slash that to 50,000. He, he has the right to do that. I'd rather see it increased. But the composition, you know, you're going to give somebody a golden ticket and come into the land of opportunity, and you have to make the hard choice of where do you prioritize. So right. I, I said I'd like to see us go to 120, 150,000. But I would prioritize it on our hemisphere and, and places where we're directly involved, like Iraq. We had troops stationed in Iraq and a lot of allies there. Um, but there's no easy answer unless you say welcome everybody, which we're not going to do. Then you have to be pragmatic, and the president's team gets to set priorities. They've shifted. You compare the refugees under Bush to the refugees under Reagan to the refugees under Carter or to Obama. Every president shifts priorities. It's never been this big of a deal. But I think the media and the left want to you know, play the identity politics card and, and show the means. So President Trump can beat that charge at, by not cutting the numbers in half. Okay. Now, if Trump does view immigration through the law and order lens, yep. which he's concerned about crime, how do you address sanctuary cities hmm. as a president of the United States? Do you go through with your threats to cut off funds to sanctuary cities? How do you use ICE? How do you do immigration enforcement? How do you do this in a way which is not going to, to freak out part of the population? How do you do it in a way, Tim, that is not going to cast you in a negative light as somebody who wants to harass citizens or racially profile people? In other words, how can Trump go about doing this effectively, not causing lasting political damage to himself, and also not lose Republicans at the same time who probably get very uncomfortable when you talk about enforcement, when you talk about this, because Republicans at all times in the back of the mind are thinking about the Hispanic vote. They're thinking about trying to grow the party. So... Again, the ball's in your court, Tim. How, yeah. do you, how do you proceed on sanctuary cities? Well, I think <clears throat> sanctuary cities are indefensible, and I think uh, people make a big mistake standing up for sanctuary. You want to stand up for legal immigration, and I've called, you know me, Bill, I've called for more legal immigration than we have right now, and we're the most generous country in the world. I see it as an economic strength. I see it as a security strength. I served in the military with colleagues who were from, or their families were originally from Egypt, we needed them as U.S. citizens to help us as we were engaged in the Middle East. That's true of all these countries. So I've seen it from many angles. But sanctuary cities um, defending criminal legal aliens and saying that any deportation is bad, uh, there are a number of people that disagree with uh, that position, including Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So it's become – it's not even politicized. It's become mediaized as a, as a racial issue. But I would, I would reassure any Republican who's worried about this – the shocking thing, of all of all the shocking things in this most recent election, was that Donald Trump won more Hispanic votes than Mitt Romney did. You know, my friends who are Hispanic Americans, they care about security. They don't want to see gangs invading the schools. So, um, no, you've got to have a deportation policy. It needs to be prioritized, but it also needs to be federalized in the sense that the local regions and the commanders of different regions, and the local ICE directors, they need to be empowered to make the best judgment call. Right. So the, the, the case where a woman was deported uh, who'd come in for her, for her annual meeting uh, who had children who were U.S. citizens. That was a very sympathetic case. But that was not 
a case decided by Donald Trump or anybody in the White House. They had given discretion back to the local community, and the, the local ICE officers had wanted to deport this woman for years and had been told, you're not allowed to. So, you know, re-empowering the, the, uh, the law, uh, p local police, sheriffs, but especially the ICE officers, getting them to cooperate and then let the chips fall where they may, you need to have a deportation system that works. I would just sugarcoat, they're not sugarcoated, I would have substance underneath that of more legal immigration and less illegal immigration. So uh, I think when they come down harsh on all avenues, um, it, it hurts the messaging. Mm -hmm. Trump did not mention the border wall. Well, he did mention the wall sort of in passing reference, but yeah. he didn't, didn't really get into any long talk about that wall. But again, when talking about building the border, it's drugs and it's terrorism and so forth. Again, this bleak thing. <laughs> what You... Follow the border wall topic, Tim. I mean, first of all, can he get the money for a border wall in Congress, do you think? Can yeah. Get, can he actually get something built? I think he could. I, I, You know, it's funny. When I first came into this issue, the first thing people talk about and protest about is the wall. Right. And I've studied it so much that I think it's maybe the least relevant piece of the puzzle. You, you can build a wall. And we have built a wall. That's the thing is this last election happened as if on, on the one side, we need to build a wall as if it's never been done. And, right. and the left saying, no, 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 we can't. Well, I, you know, in California, I spent years in San Diego. I was at UC San Diego for my PhD. They built a wall. And it, most people think it was pretty effective. Um, and it didn't shut down the gigantic doorway, the highway of traffic coming in and out for trade and for migration that's legal. So um, I think Trump could build the wall. I don't think it's that relevant an issue, to be honest. Right. It's not going to help security at this point because a lot of it's been built. But there's no big harm. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that expensive either. Um, I've heard the, the number $20 billion. I mean, coming from the DOD, $20 billion, come on, that's no. that's a, a couple of F-35s and, and you're good to go. So um, it probably wouldn't be that expensive. But I think the bigger issue is what do you do about internal enforcement? Do you have a biometric system? Do you have an exit entry visa or exit entry tracking? Um, do you have a work visa program where you are tracking people's identities? Those are a lot more important issues, even for security, than the wall itself. But there's nothing inherently objectionable or racist about the wall. People want it. Americans have expressed support for it. I think it's a silly fight to have. Right. So. Um the Hoover Institution's been in Washington for the past couple of days, and yesterday we had a lunch. Well, past couple of years. Yeah, well, past couple of years. We had a conference here where some of you Californians came and joined the D.C. office. I but. stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the Hoover Institution has been in town the past couple of days. Let's right. back over with that. And uh, we had a lunch yesterday, and our guest speaker was none less than House Speaker Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. And um, I'm a rather cynical sort who listens to speeches, and I listen as much for uh, what is not said as what is said. Okay. And the speaker didn't speak for very long. No, uh, that's right. Had a big day ahead of him. He, he went right his, to Q&A. He, he had to he, save his pipes for later on that night. So oh, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't waste it necessarily. It was kind of neat, though, to see we, we just welcomed Paul to lunch. Exactly. I should say Speaker Ryan to lunch. and. And then a few hours later, we see him, you know, welcoming the president. Well, that was neat, it that is. juxtaposition. It is, and on a level of, uh, you know, he has been attending Hoover Institution functions for a long time and coming up for roundtables, and you literally have seen him, you know, growing into what he is today just as a, just as a stronger, more confident, just more sure uh, leader. But in the course of his remarks, Tim, 
There was a word missing from the conversation. That word was immigration. Was it immigration? Immigration. Yeah. He talked very bullishly about tax reform, and he obviously talked very bullishly about Obamacare. Yep. And he talked about the process and how he thinks he could get these things done. But you noticed he did not talk did, about. Did you hear though? He said they're going to try to pass two budgets this year yes. because they have they have some, right. to catch up for some of the mess that uh, right. that's been there in the past. But they, he, they've but got a full right. plate though. But he could have easily <laughs> gone down the buffet line that politicians often do, which is a bit of what Trump did last night in his speech, yeah. but when somebody's running for an office, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. In other words, you just kind of check every box possible to yeah. make everybody in the room happy. But he did not touch immigration. Yeah. Now, does that indicate to you that he didn't think that it was really on the audience's mind, or does that indicate to you that when he looks at the most pressing things facing this Congress, immigration is the kind of thing that, if anything, could just kind of funk everything up? In defense... Uh, Speaker Bryan, who we're all fans of, because uh, he's a he's a policy wonk at heart. Correct. Uh, he he spoke for a few minutes and then he said, "Ask any question you want." So people didn't ask people about didn't immigration. Ask about it. That is true. I think people are a bit exhausted by this policy, uh, and, and I've heard Speaker Bryan in the past address this. The media have asked him about it, and he said, "Look, we're going to focus on security first. That's sort of our plan for this year." And there are a lot of conservatives who felt that's been neglected, the wall's been neglected. So look, focus on security for this year, but let's start putting in motion um, the legislation that we'll be taking in the future. And the, and the president's driven the agenda a bit on executive action that's now sort of an executive branch, judicial branch uh, kerfuffle. But I, I'll, I'll say this, I've been asked to uh, give a talk down in San Diego, um, so I'll be down there in a month. And I thought about talking about immigration, but I think everyone's a little exhausted by it. So there's excitement. The president brought it up in his speech last night. Um, but my sense is they're going to do the security thing first. They're going to then go step by step through some steps that make a lot of sense. The fight, though, Bill, I'll tell you, is not, I think, whether the legislature restructures the composition, which will be a major change from the mid-1960s to today. We'll have had 50 years of favoring family reunification in our legal process to a merit system. The fight will be over what's the number. And uh, the number right now is 1 million legal immigrants a year. Um, there was a bill already in the Senate, this touches on what you asked earlier, from Senator Cotton and Senator Perdue that said restructure, go to a merit-based system, and cut the number in half literally by 50%. Right. I think that will lose. Uh, and I, I, would, I think would, the president would be very smart to say, hey, you know what, let's make it 1.1 million, but let's change the composition. So that will, we, we know the fight that's coming. It's, it's limited, it's focused, um, and, uh, and I think the good guys will win. Okay, let's get out on this note. Let's move forward a year from now. We're having the same conversation in this tiny little room here in the Hoover DC office. And Let's talk about progress. You talked about step-by-step -step progress. Let's talk about what Trump could have done in immigration, what could be possible to achieve a year from now, given that you're not going to go for comprehensive, that dreaded word, comprehensive right, immigration right. reform, but that there are a lot of incremental things he can do. So move those goalposts for us, if you will. But tell us one or two realistic, practical things that can be done between now and a year from now on this topic. I would... Uh be very happily surprised, uh, and maybe surprised not the right word. I'd just be very happy to see the legislature take a leading role again, um, because when things shifted to presidential action under Obama, um, that was a big rupture with his executive memoranda. Right, which means uh, essentially the president and the courts are driving immigration that, policy. So, so I think that was unfortunate, and 
my advice and my great hope is that um, Paul Ryan and, and Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell, re realize um, they could do one easy thing where you get the public behind you, you get 99% of your policy experts, which is if there's a, a foreign-born engineer that comes to MIT or Caltech or UCLA or Stanford mm -hmm. and is getting an engineering degree and they ask to be uh, become a U.S. citizen, they automatically get a green card along with their diploma. Um, just pass that bill and form a coalition again of legislators that are working in the same direction. You, you, you form a governing coalition on immigration. That's my hope. We'll be there a year from now, um, but at least I hope that bill will be in consideration a year from now. Sounds good. Promise me this. A year from now, we'll have this conversation again. I love it. Tim Kaine, good talking to you today. Same. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th president. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the best work of Hoover fellows, including Dr. Tim Kaine, straight to your inbox. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Tim Kaine's also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Timmer Kane, T-I-M-M-E-R-K-A-N-E. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Thanks for listening. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.